Father, there are times in which we do not appreciate enough the opportunity that we have to open the pages of your revealed word to man. It is such a privilege for throughout human history you have disclosed yourself to us, describing to us how we are to live, what we are to believe, an avenue in which we can see our sin and the redemption that is found in your Son. Thank you, Father. We have that privilege for your word can help us restore our soul. It gives us wisdom. It places joy within our hearts. It is something, Father, that makes us more like Christ. So we come to you this morning to ask the Spirit of God to speak to us. And so, Father, do this so that we leave this place different from when we have um, come into his doors. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible at this time, please open it up to Genesis chapter 46. For as you already know, we are in the midst of the story of Joseph. And what we have been saying from the beginning, this isn't necessarily a story directly about Joseph. It is about Jacob's life on how God, where God has taken him and where he is going to bring him to. And so it is a story in which God is telling the Hebrew uh, people that he is always providentially working within the lives of his people to bring about his plans and to bring about his glory. And so last week was part one in which we first saw Jacob in a state of stunnedness. And so uh, we saw that he heard news that his long dead son was actually alive. And not only was he alive, but he was ruler in all of Egypt. So once that reality set in, he wanted to see his son. And as chapter 46 began last time, he leaves the promised land with his family and he sets off to go to Egypt. And as we saw last, last time, uh, beginning in verse 1, he was in a state of troubled because he was unsure if it was proper for him to move forward because he knew he was leaving the promised land that God has given to them, but yet he was probably unsure if that was something God wanted him to do for he knew that e Egypt was a very pagan place and there were past warnings like to his father not to go down to Egypt. He also knew how Abraham um, was told by God that there would one day be future hardships for God people in a strange land for 400 years. And so I believe that he was troubled and he needed to stop in Beersheba to worship, to bring about sacrifices, to receive pardon, to bring his praises to God, and to get direction for his troubled spirit. So God then responds to Jacob's actions, calls him by name, gives him comfort, reassures Jacob by reminding Jacob of who God, who God is, by reaffirming the covenant that he made with his forefathers, by giving him direction to go down into Egypt, by giving Jacob a promise once again that he will make them 
a great nation. He affirms to Jacob that he will be with him, himself, personally, as he goes down to Egypt, and yet he will bring him back into the land. And lastly, he gives Jacob the assurance that Joseph will be with him when he dies. And so Jacob now, with this renewed vigor, goes out in, um, now from a state of troubleness into a state of assurance. He is assured that, that God is at work and that his reunion with, jo- with Jacob will take place, that he has nothing to worry about because God was with him. In the same way God was with uh, Joseph as he was placed into slavery, God is with Jacob, and he has that assurance to step forward in confidence. And so he takes everyone with him into um, the track. And as we saw last time, beginning um, leaving off at verses 5 through 7, it's all their property, all their livestock, all the family, the grandsons, Um, and everyone else, and they leave the promised land. And so that's where we sort of um, stopped last time, and we're going to be picking up the story in verses 8 through 27, where we get to see the numbering of Jacob's family. And look at verse 8. As uh, as these verses begin to unfold, we find that now these are the names of the sons of Israel. Israel. And I'm just going to stop right there and just sort of um, give, give a comment. This is the first time that the Hebrews, the sons of Jacob, are called the sons of Israel. And that's going to play a very important part as the, um, as the rest of the book unfolds. For it, it is the beginning of them as a unified group of people to become the nation in which God will use. And so that is significant because they are going to be referred to as the people of God in relationship to its father, Jacob, or Israel. And so they are now a unified people focused on worshiping Yahweh God. God has touched each one of their lives, brought together as a group to be a nation of followers. And so in verses 8 through 27, we then begin to get this list of names. And it's interesting because we don't have much of a story here. We have a genealogy. And it is a genealogy in, in which when most um, people begin to hear a genealogy when it is preached, the yawns start a happening, the back row eyes begin to close, and we have a list of names. I know who you are. I am going to be watching, but this is something to where it's not necessarily something that we don't have to worry about because these lists, these lists of names that we have gives us um, a platform in which is foundational for the entire nation of Israel. And so uh, we begin to see that in verses 8 through 27, it's more than just a list of names. Through these lists of names, it's going to show the fullness of Jacob's obedience. And so I'm not going to read things, but it begins with Reuben in uh, in verse 8, and then in verse 10, Simeon, and it begins to list the sons of Jacob. It, It is going to show the fullness of Jacob's obedience by taking his entire family with him. 
He acted in the same way as his father did when God told him to leave Ur and go to the land of Canaan. He took all of his possessions. And so as he begins to unfold these lists of names, God said, go. Jacob takes his entire family with him. So we get to see that Jacob is fully trusting what God has told him to do. For he goes, because he knows that God will be with them. He goes to see Joseph, his son. He goes in which he knows it's a one-way ticket in which he will not return into the land. He also knows that his descendants would one day return. So he is in full confidence in walking by faith with God to whatever happens to them in the future, that God would be with them all. But the second reason why we have a list of names and why it's important, that it is going to be a marker of how God will change them as a people. It serves as a textual marker where God's people are now as they enter into Egypt in what will take place over the next 400 years while they are there. For they enter Egypt as a ragtag group of people, and they exit with more than 2 million people over 400 years later. And so it's a textual marker of where they are now and what God is going to do to bless them. And the third element on why this list is important is to trace the promised seed. We're given a genealogy here because there is a promised one going back to Genesis chapter 3 that will come and be the promised one who will bring about redemption. And so for for the, uh, for the Hebrews, they need to trace the bloodline of the one who will one day come. And so we have here in a concise listing a genealogy, not just showing Jacob's sons and who enters in, but who the promised seed will one day come. But you got to wait to chapter 49 for that. And so we have a list of names and it's interesting because when you begin to break down this list here, which I'm not going to read for you, there is a summary statement that really, that's all you really need, need to know is found in verse 27. And so, I won't let the back row uh, yawn too much, so I'll just read verse 27. It says, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. Yet Joseph had two sons. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So there are 70 people, Moses is telling us, that entered into the land of Egypt with Jacob at this time. It's repeated a number of times in the Old Testament, uh, one of which is found in Exodus 1.5. And so you say, all right, there are 70 people in Jacob's family entering Canaan, or leaving Canaan and entering into Egypt. But if we were to sort of look at these names, which we're not going to do, and begin to sort of start counting, there's, um, there's some confusion that may enter into your mind because the list actually has more than 70 people that are listed. And so some people say, aha, there's a, there's a contradiction going on. And not just that, if we were to turn to Acts chapter 7 and verse 14, Stephen, as he preaches, doesn't say that there are 70, but says that as, as um, Jacob, his father, and all his relatives, as they entered into Egypt, there were 75. 
And so the critics will say, aha, you see, the Bible has contradictions. But it's, there, there aren't really um, a contradiction, because if you go to look at verse uh, 26, there says that there are 66 people thus far in the list. And so this is a listing of people who entered into Egypt, but as you begin to take out the ones who were born in Egypt, uh, um, Joseph's sons, there's some grandsons, um, two of, of Jacob's uh, children, um, uh, not Jacob, Judah's uh, children are dead, and you begin to still get the number of 70. And so it's not a con contradiction. It's just a very thorough listing of names. And yet there's a third reason why this list here is emphasized, is to show a complete family. It, I, I believe, underscores a complete family. Now, there are many who really likes the numbers of of Scripture, and they get into what numbers mean and why numbers are there, and um, sometimes it's very easy to read too much in, into the text. But I'm just going to give you what some of the commentators say, and you can take it for what it's worth, why uh, the number of 70 here is, is being given to us. First of all, this list is really broken down into groups of names. Each one of the groups are named from, from their mother and their, and their mother's influence. For as this um, set of verses begin to open up, we find Jacob's wife Leah being mentioned in her offspring, in her grandchildren. And so Jake, uh, Leah had 33 sons and grandsons within this listing here. And also down in verse 18, we have Leah's handmaid that was given to Jacob, and she bore ch uh, children, and she had 16 sons and grandsons of Jacob. So if you take the 33 and you take the 16, you get 49. Why is that important? Because there are seven groups of seven offspring from Leah. Seven is the number of perfection. And you say, all right, that's nice. Well, then we look at um, Jacob's uh, second wife, Rachel, the one that he loved. Th through her offspring, uh, Joseph and, and, and Benjamin, there were 14 sons and grandsons in all, two sets of seven. And then you have Rachel's handmaid that she gave to, um, to Jacob, and she had seven sons and grandsons. So Rachel had two sets of seven in one group of seven. So when you begin to add all things up, there are ten groups of seven where you get 70. Seven is the number of perfection. Ten is the number of completeness or fullness. I came out of that and saying, hmm... That's nice. Take it for what it's worth. It could be why, why it's there. But what I do know is, is that this is a picture that God gives us that Jacob took everything to Egypt, that he was fully walking in the obedience of God, trusting that God will eventually bring his family back into the land that he promised him. But it's, hmm, that's nice. Take it for what it's worth. But we have a picture of Jacob's complete family. 
And then in verses 28 and 34, which we're really going to pick up our, our story, Jacob arrives in Egypt. And this one section, I believe, should more, be more of part of chapter 47, because all of the events are about the reunion, about how to, the preparation uh, with Pharaoh, the actual meeting of Pharaoh, and so it really come, comes together as a succinct unit. But there are four aspects as these verses begin to unfold that I want to draw your attention to. The first aspect is found in the opening verses is the anticipation of Jacob. Jacob is en route to Egypt. And I believe, though this uh, first aspect is implied in the passage, that there is much anticipation that is just welling up in, in his heart to get there and to see his son. They probably had to travel about 250 miles. And so when you have the full family, you have the flocks, you got the wagons, you have everything, you have to make pit stops, it's a long 250 miles. Even if they travel for 10 days at 25 miles a day, that's a long stretch. And so he, in his heart, probably wanted to get there. But between the starting and stopping, the setting up of camp, the tending to the animals, however long it took throughout the rough wilderness journey, it took time. But the closer they got to Egypt, the greener things got. The scenery began to change. The appearance of more wildlife, the yearning in his heart, and the countdown of after each hour would tick down would well up within his heart because that's what people do. If you ever go on vacation and you yearn to get there or if you're away from, your, from a loved one in which you've been separated over a period of time and you're waiting at the airport, you're looking at your watch and you just want to see them. I believe this is the same thing that is, that is happening within him. So he is in a state of anticipation. He is in, in a place where he just wants to be with his son. And then in verse 28, we have the, sense, the, the second aspect that I want you to look at. It said in verse 28, and he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And so Jacob begins to set up preparation for everybody to get there. And so he sends out Jacob to be the family representative. Because entering into the country, I'm sure there were some border crossings. There were some places to where you had to check documentation, just like in any other country. You just can't waltz in. And so he sends Judah to make those preparations. And this is actually the fourth time within a f these few amount of chapters that even mentions Judah in which he is the leader for the family. He's the spokesperson. And by the time we, we get to chapter 49, we are, we are going to see his ultimate preeminence for the family be made perfectly clear. And so he goes before the family, needs to find a translator, tell them that everybody's coming in with all their possessions and all the animals, to, um, tell them that, um, give word to Joseph that they're here and to uh, make sure that they go to the uh, right part of the land that Joseph wants them to go to. And so Judah here is the family rep representative. But not just that. Look at the last part of the verse. We find the third element, 
that I want you to notice. And the third element is that they finally arrive in the land. And they came to the land of Goshen. Now, there's, there's a map, I think, that, that we have with Goshen that will help, help you understand why this, is a, why this is the best land that Egypt has. It's found in the northeast portion of, of, of Egypt, and it's the perfect place of raising livestock. The Nile River is, 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 found, is found there, which is the longest river in the world, over four, uh, 4,200 miles. And it doesn't flow from north to south. It flows from south to north. It's one of the only rivers to do that in the world. And towards the end, the Nile River branches off to many smaller rivers. And it makes the entire area green and lush and fertile. It's the perfect place to water animals, to feed animals, and to have a nomadic lifestyle tending to those animals. That's Goshen. And as Joseph previously said, it's the best land. And that's going to be important later on. And so the Nile was a very important part of the Egyptian culture, so much so that they even worshipped the Nile. And so Joseph and his family, they finally get there. And as they entered in, they would have looked different from everyone else living there. Because for everyone else coming into Egypt, they were there just to get food. So they took their, the animals and their wagons that, in which they would uh, be empty. They would fill them up and then leave. This group of people entered into the land with all their stuff. And it would have just Stood out. They just looked different from all the rest. Even though some of them had new, new clothes given to them by, by Joseph, just their demeanor, just who they looked like would have been different from the Egyptians. They probably had full beards where the Egyptians were generally clean-shaven. And so 70 people with all their um, possessions just entering into the land, coming to the checkpoint, saying that we're here and we're coming to see Joseph. And so they're there entering into the land and then we have the long-awaited uh, part of the story. If it was a movie, it would toward, sort of be like the climax of the movie. You wait, the, uh, you know, Joseph in, in slavery, and you wait for that climactic reunion. And we finally get it here. And as this uh, one section beginning in verse 29 begins to unfold, it's not necessarily anymore about Jacob's obedience. Rather, it's going to unfold that God and his faithfulness is at work with his people. And so this time and next time, we're going to be looking at seven aspects of God's faithfulness that he does through his people that will help give the, the people as a group of people confidence and assurance that he is with them. And so the first principle is this, as these verses unfold, that God is going to keep his promises by reuniting Jacob and Joseph together. God promised, you're going to see Joseph, and now 
step one, it, it is there. The great reunion that we have. After 22 years of grief and loss, Jacob finally gets to set his eyes on someone that he mourned for for 23 years. Verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. And then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Joseph hears word, and he jumps on his chariot to, to sort of go meet them. Now a chariot was a symbol of his position in power. And when I first read it, I first thought, boy, that's, that was the only thing available. And his, in, in his position, yeah, it was. He wasn't flaunting his power, and he wasn't flaunting his wealth. That's all he had. That's what the higher-ups, that's what the warriors had. That, that's what they had. And so he goes in his chariot, and he goes to meet them, and probably he didn't travel alone. I'm sure he would have had his own security team that would travel with him to keep him safe. And for the Egyptian citizens, citizenry, the people, um, they would not always have seen chariots. They would have seen wagons. They would have seen horses. But to see a, ch a chariot was something very special. And so as these chariots, these group of chariots would rumble by, it would be a spectacle for everyone. And he was going to a place that was out of ordinary for Joseph and his position to go to, farmland, the rural part. Most of the people weren't there. They, they lived in the cities. They, they lived in a the, in the place where the Egyptians would gather. And so it's not a prominent place for a leader of an empire to travel to. But he is there, and he goes up, and he meets his father. And then in the last part of verse 29, he arrives. He sees his father, and he runs to him. And it says, as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept a long time. If we could, I wish I could describe the emotion that was going, going through in Joseph's mind. All the years of loneliness, all the years of pain. He's in the land of his, affection, uh, of his affliction. And he finally sees his father and he just weeps. His heart was, was, was broken and now um, it is there with him and he falls on his neck. That one phrase means to lie or to be cast down. So he's there and he wraps his arm around, around his father and he just collapses. And it says that he did it for a long time. One of the things that you find out if you begin to look at both Jacob and Joseph, Jacob, he was a hugger. There was something uh, about Jacob showing his emotions back. In Genesis chapter 29, Laban gives him a, a big hug when he sees Jacob ki uh, kissing Rachel. In Genesis 33, Jacob gets a huge hug from Esau. Jacob thought he was going to die, and Esau's there, and they embrace. In chapter 48, there's going to be some major hugging with, his, with Joseph's sons. 
And then in chapter 50, before he dies, he embraces Joseph. And so he is there and he is hugging him. Joseph, he's a hugger. When he saw his brothers after he reveals himself, he just grabs Benjamin and he weeps. He hugs his brother and there's full reconciliation. And so he is there and he's embracing them, showing his deep emotion and love that he has had and he just lets it go. Now, just as a footnote, I think it's, it's good for people to hug. In some cultures, they hug up, uh, better than, than others. And I know here in this church, one of the things that I found out quite early is that there are some good huggers here. And you know who you are. There are some good huggers here. And on some, some Sunday mornings, I walk in, and it's nice to sort of get a hug. And so it's something that when I don't get a hug, I begin to wonder, what, what have I done? <laughs> I, I do things bad. But, um, you know, George, what, 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 what haven't I done? Because handshakes, handshakes are good, but a hug shows a deeper level of a relationship. And also it's interesting to note the weeping here. Joseph hugs and he weeps. And I just have to, and I just have to say that it is fine for God's people to cry. Sometimes we, we shed a tear when we're deeply moved by something. Sometimes when someone hurts us, we cry. Sometimes we're mourning um, with someone or about something and we cry. Sometimes there are even tears of joy that takes place. And so Joseph is crying here. But I want you to know within, within this one passage, as Joseph embraces his father, He's the only one crying. The text doesn't say that Jacob's heart is weeping also. And I found that sort of interesting, and none of the commentators really sort of brought that out. Why does it say that Joseph is crying? Well, there's two possibilities that I came up with. First possibility is after all those years of grief that Jacob had done, he's all cried out because he mourned. And he didn't want any kind of comfort from anyone. And so it could be that he's cried out. But I think more importantly is as he sees his son hugging him and giving out tears of joy, that he begins to act like the father that he should be. And he begins to comfort Joseph as he weeps as all those years of pain and things just come out in his emotions, he is extending him comfort. Jacob, the terrible father to the entire family, now is finally acting in a godly way to father his son here. And so crying is very important. It's not unmanly or unwomanly for a person to cry. Even our Lord cried. At the death of Lazarus in John 11, as the Passion Week begins and he sees Jerusalem, as he enters into the city, he wept. And even the night before he dies on the cross in the garden, 
Hebrews 5 tells us that he weeps. And so showing great emotion on display is going on here. It was a tremendous reunion, a sign of love, a sign of forgiveness, a sign in which the family is back together, a sign in which God has promised to fulfill it and he has done. And so then in verse 30, we see Joseph, other's new state. He is now in a state of satisfaction. Look at verse 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Jacob goes from a state of trouble to the state of assurance to the state of anticipation and now to a state of satisfaction. And he says, I'm ready to die. My heart is full. My heart is content. There is nothing else that I need to do or say. I am ready to die. Now, for an elderly person to say that they are ready to die it could be quite normal. In Jacob's story, he's been saying that ever since we've seen, seen him in the latter part of his life. Joseph is dead. I'm going to die. Um, there's a famine coming. We're going to run out of food. We're all going to die. We're going to run out of food again, and I'm going to die. You know, I, if I have to give up Benjamin, I'm going to die. But the tone here is different. It's not one out of sorrow and despair. It's one in which there are words of hope and thanksgiving. His tone has changed. There's a satisfaction within his heart that he can now die in peace. There is a part in which his heart is completely content. It comes from after having a heart that wanted and needed to worship, in which he gained assurance from the Lord that everything was in the Lord's hands, that all the promises that, that his grandfather got, that his father got, and he received from the Lord would all be fulfilled. And he stood in that assurance to say that I and now set, I can die in peace. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. There's a very similar sense, uh, sentiment that was done by Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25 through verse 32. It's a part of the uh, Christmas story, if, if you would, to where the infant Jesus had come, they bring him to the temple for the ceremonies that you do for an, an infant, and then for the circumcision. And then we find this aspect in verse, in verse 25. And it says that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Somehow he knew in his heart that he would see the long-promised Messiah. He just knew that before he died and he waited, he still not come. There were word that, um, that the Messiah was here, but they were false, false messiahs. He's getting older. Somehow he knew that before he died that he would see the Messiah. 
Uh, verse 27, and he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant or, or slave to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon says, I can now die. There were word from, 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 the, from the shepherds that Messiah had come. They seen these crazy angels and they were flying around, but those are crazy shepherds. Uh, but now he knew within his heart. He saw Mary and Joseph and he saw the babe and the Holy Spirit um, gave him confidence that this was the promised one, the promised one that Israel was waiting for. And he get to hold, held him in his hands. And he said, now I can die to know that God's promises are being fulfilled in the lives of his people. And so that's the same aspect that Jacob is going through here. He had the full assurance and confidence in the faithfulness of God that he would fulfill all the promises that he had made. And he found complete rest in that. He understood the full significance of the dreams of Joseph from the encounters that he had with God, telling him what those promises would be. He had the full confidence that God would bring him back into the promised land. He had the full confidence that God would make them into a great nation, that he had the full assurance that God would bless the nations through them. And that one day, he had the full confidence to know that he would send the promised one to bring about that redemption that the people needed for the forgiveness of sins. And Jacob could now rest in that satisfaction. His heart could be, is completely content in knowing that. I'm with Joseph. Just being with him is enough. Now I can die and be with the Lord. He has to wait another four, uh, 17 years, but that's okay. But we'll, we'll see that as it unfolds. But in a real sense, this contentness, this assurance, this confidence that he has is made available to every believer. You don't have to wait until you're a ripe old age and say, I'm ready to die. You can rest in that satisfaction now to know that if the Lord were to take me home, I'm ready to go. If the Lord were to do something to my family, that's okay. Because we have the peace that comes through the salvation of the Lord in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in what he had done for us upon the cross. And so the question comes up, do you have that same satisfaction in your life that Jacob is having? It's not something that you have to put off till later on. But we can and should have it today. Now, getting to that place is a difficult place to be. If you're young, single, you want to get married, you want to have children, you want to have grandkids, you, you, want, you want the full gamut of things. 
And so there's that expectation that's out there. For others, you want to provide for your family. So you get that occupation. You strive for that career. And you just keep working and working to get to the place where you can be satisfied. But the world says that you have to strive after those things. But ask your friends at work. Ask your neighbors, are you satisfied with where you are? I see people at the bank have millions of dollars in their account, and I'm sure that they would say, no, I'm not satisfied where I currently am. That if God were to take me home, I would say, that's okay. Jacob had this complete contentment and satisfaction. This satisfaction is not found in in any kind of materialism. It's not found in any kind of earthly success. It's not found in achieving certain things in this life. It's not found by fame and prominence. It goes to something that is much deeper. It goes to what David said in Psalm 17 in verse 15, where David writes, As for me, I shall behold your faith in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. The more I walk with the Lord, the more I become just like him, the more satisfaction should well up in my heart of where my current walk is. But so many times there are things that I bring into my own life where I'm not satisfied. But even if times are hard and difficult, that kind of satisfaction can be there. I want you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4 into a very familiar section and a very familiar verse. For many, it's a life verse that um, people have, uh, Philippians 4 and verse 13, where it says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We know that verse. But in Philippians chapter 4, when you begin to look at the greater context of what that verse means, the greater context of that verse is one of contentment. When we are walking by the Spirit, being content, then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look what Paul writes in verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me my affliction. So they're walking with with Christ. They're sharing affliction. but, But Paul says you can be content, that you can rejoice in the Lord greatly, and then you can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we live in a very dissatisfied world. 
The world is not satisfied. Even back in 1965, Mick Jagger saying, I can get no satisfaction. But I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and now I put that song into your head for the rest of the day. I am sorry. But that's the reality of the world. There will never be a satisfaction outside of knowing and walking with Christ. Striving after that next job, striving after that right family, striving after owning the right cars, the right house, whatever it may be, it doesn't bring satisfaction. Because we can be in the place where our hearts are fully satisfied. That's why I love in Jeremiah 31 and verse 25, where the Lord tells Jeremiah, for I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. The Lord is there to bring about satisfaction, to bring about contentment for whatever situation that we're going through. And then also in in Isaiah 58 in verse 11, we find the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose water did not fail. The Lord is there to guide and to satisfy despite the surroundings just withering things away. And it brings about a watering and a strengthening And so this is where Jacob is at. He finally, after 130 years of struggle, of hardship, and that's going to mark Jacob's life, but we'll look at that next week, that the puzzle of his life finally came together. After 130 years, it was not too late for him to understand this contentment. He was satisfied with the puzzle of his life, even with the prospect of death looming on him. But yet, as this passage continues to go on, and as we begin to sort of finish things, we we find the next section now talks about the instruction that Joseph has to his family. They are there, reunion done, and he says, all right, now that you're here, we have to get some things straight so that we can stay here and that the Egyptians view our stay properly. And so we find this in verse 31. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, and for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians." And so after being re, um, after God keeps his promises by uh, reuniting Jacob and Joseph, we find the second principle uh, uh, being given to us here that begins to unfold. That God will keep his promises by providing for his people, and he's going to do it 
through the man with a plan, and that's Joseph. Joseph has been thinking about this for a while. How can I get um, my family here and that the Egyptians to accept them to be here? And so he tells them and begins to unfold this plan. But why would he have a plan to begin with? Because it is easy for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh to see this group of people as both a threat and a liability. Because it's very easy for them to be seen as a liability and a threat. Why would they be a, a liability? Well, for the Egyptians, it's more mouths to feed. There's a severe famine going on and thousands of people are dying all the time. And now you have this other group of people that we have to provide for. And secondly, uh, they could be viewed as a liability because they take up other important resources away from Egypt. They could be there because it's a wealthy country and they want in on the action. And so they could be viewed as a liability. But they could also be viewed as a threat as they stay, as they grow in numbers they could be viewed as a threat. But he tells, he's going to tell Pharaoh that they're not a threat because they're related to him. I will go up and tell Pharaoh, you're my family. And I'm sure for the first time since he was reunited with the brothers, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh would have been amazed. You got a family? Never talked about them before. And says, yes, I do, and they're here. Not only are they not going to be a threat because they're his family, but secondly, they're not a threat because of their occupation. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what do you do? Verse 34, tell them that, you're, that your servants, Pharaoh, we are your servants, that we're keepers of livestock from our youth until now. Even our forefathers were shepherds. And so tell Pharaoh that we are your servants, which is a sign of respect, and tell them that you're just shepherds. Why just shepherds? Well, from God's perspective, God wants to keep the sons of Israel in a humble place until he brings them into prominence back into uh, the, the promised land. But it's to keep from being a threat to the Egyptians. It would help preserve their culture as Hebrews, their unity, and elevate them once, once they go back. So tell them that they're shepherds, in, in which they were. They were nomadic. They would go from place to place to bring, the, to bring their flocks. So tell them that. And when you tell them that, because they're loath, shepherds are the lowest of the low within the culture of Egypt. Why, why, why would such a thing be loathsome? Well, they're unschooled. Egyptians are very educated. They're unskilled. Egyptians build great cities and monuments. They got nothing. They live in tents and they move around. They tend sheep. Anyone can tend sheep. Well, if you, tend, if you know anything about tending sheep, you need to know a lot about tending sheep. They're, they could be viewed as just being barbaric to the Egyptian culture. Because everything that, that they do aren't what the Egyptians do. They just weren't sophisticated. They don't know the language. They're just viewed as just foreigners. And so 
They look at them. They're just different. We got lots of gods. They, they got one god. That's, that's not sophisticated. They just, their clothing's different. Their facial hair is different. Being around those sheep, they just have a strange smell about them that's always there. And so uh, they're just loathsome. They want nothing to do. Go be there in Goshen and, and go, go herd your, your flocks. And so thirdly in Joseph's plan is that they're not a threat because of their temporary alien status, of their status. They're not there to put down roots. They're just there wandering until the time in which they can go back to their, their land. They produce their own stuff. They, they don't need to live off of, of what Egypt has. They're not there to acquire their wealth. So Joseph was a man with a plan, and he gets it into action. And as we're going to see next time when they go to Pharaoh, the interaction of this plan coming about with Pharaoh, because there's some interest, interesting contrast between the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt on what is going on. And so they're there in Goshen, pretty much by themselves, in which they're going to be there for 400 years, even in their slavery, they're still in Goshen. They're there to maintain their own culture so they wouldn't be assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And they are there waiting for God to say that they can go back. And so we're going to pick things up next time. But I just want to end with this one question, going back to where Jacob is. His heart is satisfied. He is seeing God's, pl God's plan begins to come about. He brought about the re reunion uh, that he had, and then he begins to bring about the provision that he promises for his people being in a foreign land. Joseph is going to keep giving them food, as much food as they want, because he's the guy in charge. They're going to be there to maintain their own culture, and God's going to provide for them. But how are you with that satisfaction as we sort of bring it back around again? How is your walk with the Lord? Or are there hurdles that you put in your way, hurdles of sin, hurdles of your, your own agenda? Or are you satisfied that if God were to take you home, even though we haven't gotten to where we are in our walk with Christ, even though there are things we're always working on, are you say? I'm okay. And the Lord can say back, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because I have a love for the Lord. I have a desire to please him. I have a desire to, no matter what God brings in front of me, I will endure in the peace that he gives me. And it only comes if you have a faith that is grounded in what Christ had done on the cross. Father, so much more could be said because this was essentially to be a one-part message, and we're going into part three next time. But Father, we thank you that you are a God who is ever at work bringing about your plan. And even though you had a plan for Israel, you have a plan for our own lives to bring your name glory in what you do and how you accomplish that. That even the hardships that we go through, that they are there to develop our trust and deepen our trust, to deepen our walk with you, 
You drive us to your word so that we can study it and to input it into our hearts to change the way that we think. For we live in a fallen world in which all of its elements are foreign to how we are to be with you. For we are strangers in a strange land. But Father, one day we will see your son face to face. And it is our desire that you too can tell us, well done. So help us, Father, learn how we can have that satisfaction when we walk to please you in the things we say and the things we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.